You are listening to the weekly Great Governance Podcast hosted by Dr. Harlan. So why do we do what we do? We are on a mission to find and voice the hidden stories of excellence in local government so that others are motivated to lead and transform communities. We share information and profile local government practitioners and active citizens who are ethically leading change and innovation in communities and showcase this on our various digital media platforms. So in this month, we'll be celebrating 40 years of the United Democratic Front, and we caught up with Reverend Alan Busak, who was a founder member of this movement that brought South Africa to its knees in the 80s. So welcome to the Great Governors Podcast, Dr. Busak, and thank you for agreeing to converse with us. The purpose of this pod is to celebrate great governance, not good, and I know that you are still an active citizen and not afraid to speak to your mind. So let me let me start right at the beginning. Dr. Busak, your name is synonymous with the liberation struggle. Uh, there's not a place you can go in South Africa or even in the world. You mentioned the name Alan Busak. People know exactly who you're talking about. Why do you do what you do? Thank you, Harlan, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you um, in this uh, podcast that I know has such a wide and appreciative uh, Listenership. I do what I do because of my faith, first and foremost. I believe in a God who is a God of justice and freedom and human dignity, a God who not only steps in to correct the injustices done to God's people, but a God who sets aside everything to correct those injustices and to do what is right uh, for God's people. And if you have that faith and 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 Jesus uh, came down uh, to this earth and the first thing he announced was that he had come to set free those who were captives, to liberate the oppressed and to heal the brokenhearted. That's liberation work. That's justice work. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you cannot say and do justice, then you're not real. And if you are engaged in justice, it seems to me that struggle for justice is so hard and so tough and ask for so many sacrifices that you cannot do it without the love and the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's my faith. And that that is what took me into the struggle and that's what kept me into the struggle even to this day. And then, of course, there is the love of one's people. Um, you don't go into a struggle because you have a vague feeling about who you are and where you come from and about the situation and the plight of your people and so you when you see injustice being done to your people your love for your people will drive you into that revolutionary situation where you know this must stop and everything has to change in our situation so those are for me the two major driving forces Harlan uh, when I think about my participation in the struggle. Now, thank you very much for that. I remember that insight that you gave at one of the speeches. You said, the more you say Jesus, the more you say justice. Uh, and and Absolutely. That, that really resonated with me. So so if we if yeah. we look at South Africa today, you know, one can argue that the struggle has not ended. South Africa today, the World Bank said last year, we're the most unequal country in the world. How do we explain this and how did we get this so wrong? Well, um, I mean, the World Bank finally admitted it uh, last year because the World Bank is a contributor to our uh, economic situation and our plight and our in inequality because, because of the new liberal policies 
it forces on everybody else. Um, but the World Bank discovered this last year, but people like uh, uh, some Peter Blanche, who's now left us, uh, that, that amazing economist from Stellenbosch University, some Peter Blanche said this 10 years ago, and he predicted that it would get so much worse, and now we learn. So, so economic policy is the main culprit here, um, Harlem, because we have read uh, the analyses that says, if you look into the South African Economic Planning Commission of the government, and you look at their planning forward, and then you read there that they have planned for these inequalities in South Africa, not just to remain, but to deteriorate and to exacerbate into 2030. So there is no plan for an equal egalitarian society that gives dignity and equality to everybody. So economic planning and economic system built on new liberal capitalism, that is the big, the big, the big problem that we are facing. And until and unless we change that economic system, because remember, new liberal economics is a, is, a, is, a, is a system that demands inequality. It takes all of the capital, it, it keeps it in the hands of a very few in the belief that it, it will so-called trickle down to, to, to the poor masses uh, at the bottom, but that does not happen. And so it's a system that cannot live without greed. It's a system that cannot live without inequality and creating, recreating those inequalities. And you see it everywhere. And so we have, because because we have such an economic system, we have an unequal education system. And so because the money is spent somewhere else, and that goes in hand with all of the corruption, uh, there are wonderful private schools in South Africa. And if you are rich enough, your kids will have a good education. But if you are a normal person, if you are a poor person, your children are doomed. Um, and, and we do nothing about the situation, for instance, about the schools uh, in our town. And our solution in South Africa is, what do we do when you get to matric? We lower the standard. And mm. so you take that child with a lower standard and you doom that child to forever be running 10 miles behind the comrade or the friend or the neighbor who's been able to go to a private school. And I'm not even talking about international standards. If our kids and our economy 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we have to have to compete with the economics and, and, and the kids who come from those more equal systems in a world economy. And so it's all, all, all wrong. And we're not doing the right thing, I think, to begin to address the problem. I'm glad you mentioned Professor Sam Peter Blanche. He remains one of my academic heroes. But he also said, you know, that it looks like the ANC did not have a choice, is that they were caught napping and that they are beholden to capital. Are you saying that the ANC, in fact, had a choice? I'm saying the ANC had a choice, and I'll tell you why. We now know more and more and more about those secret talks that happened between the, the, the elite leadership of the African National Congress and the elite leadership of the old apartheid national party structures, the Bruderbond and all those people. And, 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 and after, and after, say around about 1999, 2000, especially after Professor Veli book, The End Game, uh, and, and, and Neil Barnard's book, we begin to understand more now what happened behind the scenes um, and it's very very clear to me that the ANC had a choice I mean the excuse that the ANC said we were 
put under pressure by the NMF, uh, IMF, sorry, by the IMF and by the World Bank and by the United States government. I'm not saying that is not true. Of course they will do so because it's their job to keep everybody under the heel of American imperialism. We see that all over Africa. So mm. But we had an opportunity. Nelson Mandela was unique in many, many ways. And one of the ways in which the uniqueness of Nelson Mandela show is that I know for a fact that Nelson Mandela was unhappy with the economic policy that the ANC people crafted in their talks um, before the negotiations. So that our negotiations almost become nothing more than political theater because the conclusions of the negotiations that were to come afterwards were already reached between 1985 and 1989. And so we need to be honest with these things. And, and, and the, the, the Mandela wanted, let me say, put it in this way. Mandela wanted the freedom charter economics. So a, a kind of social democracy that the freedom charter says in which capital is generated but government has great insight and government has the right to intervene to make sure that through social justice all our people, not just the top, benefit from the economic system. And if we had taken that route we would have been in a totally different situation. I was one of those in the ANC when I was still there who raise that possibility. And there was one man, I will never forget, I will not mention his name because he's today, he was a communist then, but today he is almost seen as the, as, as the, as the poster boy for the IMF in South Africa and for capital. He said to me, with your argument for a social democracy, remember I come from the black consciousness movement and we talked about an open, democratic, non-racial, egalitarian society. Mm. That was, that was black consciousness. And, 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 and he said to me, oh, you're opening the door to capitalism. That guy now has more money than he will ever be able to spend in his lifetime or his children or children's children's lifetime. So fickle are they. And when Mandela insisted upon it, they insisted upon the old man changing his views. And so I don't, I don't believe anymore. And also, this is another thing. I'm saying the uniqueness of Mandela as Mandela, a symbol of that historic moment was such. If the old man had insisted, my country will go this way because it's the best way economically for us to go. And he had challenged the world. I would have, I would have seen whether George Bush or Clinton or whoever it was would have said to, Man, to that Mandela at that particular point in history, if you don't do what we say, we'll sanction you or we will rip your country apart or we will send in troops to force you to do it. They would not have been able to do that. Not, not after they had put him on such a pedestal and bring him just, just under God. You can't do that. Lift a bad person up high, higher than Jesus and then tell him if you don't do what, what we say. So Mandela had an opportunity. So the question, I suppose, goes this way. How hard has the pressure been on Mandela mm. for him to give in? And the question is, if Mandela had stood, which he did not do, where would we have been? And so it's a bit of a dilemma for South Africans, but that is how one wrestles with history and with the present situation. And that's how you come to the conclusion. Doesn't matter now what Mandela should have said or would, did not do. What matters now is what we do. 
Mm. Whether we can take this moment and we can take power out of the hands of these new liberal buffoons who are running our country right now and see whether we can get a change in leadership and therefore also a change in economic policy. So, so which leads me to my next question. If you look at how the UDF managed to organize themselves, local organizations across the board, uh, a united front. Now, the question is, can you turn this economic system around? You know, can, can you, can we, and people nostalgically sometimes long for the good old bad days. Can this, what the UDF achieved then, can that be repeated? Well, you have to, I think it can for, for basically one reason, and I'll come to some other things as well. The, the, the fundamental reason is South Africa's people are a very politically aware people. It's not as if we had forgotten everything that we were capable of doing. We are very, very much aware of our history, and even though we've had 30 years in which that history has almost been wrenched from our hands, and the power of that history being placed in the power in the hands of a few people who are now at the top exercising power over us. And even though they have tried to erase that history from our mind, you will remember my concept that I introduced in 2005, unremembering that, that concept, that, that deliberate political decision to change and distort and erase history so as to fit the dominant narrative of the moment. Even with all of that, you can see the moment I... I, I, I wrote that letter. That stirred in people um, the memory of what the United Democratic Front was. Now, the other side of the coin, though, is that we must remember that in the last 30 years, the ANC has done everything in its power to make powerless and voiceless all of our community organizations. They told us you don't need NGOs anymore. You've got a government of your choice and your people. We will see to it. They told us you don't know, need this and in your communities anymore because local government will be in our hands. You'll have wards and those ward people will be accountable to you and will be responsible to the to, uh, for you and accountable to the movement. And we will basically do what your local legal clinics had done. We will do what your local NGOs have done. We will do what your local sports bodies have done. Political work. I'm not talking about letting kids play on mm. a field. I'm not talking the political work that is behind sports. To me, in other words, to see that your local kids who come from Bontiable or Peril or Boland or wherever, they get the training, they get the development so that they can be good enough to play for the Springboks. So that we don't have this lopsided nonsense in a Springbok team where we run, people run on the team and then the whole country is still divided. Do we cheer or don't we cheer? So, so. That has been taken away from us. And when we now say we must take back our power, in the very first place, it must mean that we must take back the power at the local level. Our communities must begin to think for themselves, analyze for themselves, make decisions for themselves, realize that these people have, have, have betrayed us, but don't get stuck in your anger. Find ways, like we did in 1983, find creative ways to come together, channel that anger into an 
energy that energizes into an energy that transforms into an energy that transcends your anger and the misery and bring people together in a way that 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 we that we have done. And the good thing about the UDF, um, Harlan, if I may say, is if we now talk about we are we can be united, we can bring about change, we can be powerful, we can bring down apartheid walls, even though those edifices were so strong. Is we have seen it in history. It's not a pipe dream. Um, when I talk to people about this, they know I'm not lying because they were there and we South Africa's people were actually able to do these things. And because we have been able to do these things, the question now is, are we able to re-energize ourselves? Are we so angry at yeah. what has been done to ourselves and our children, our hopes and our ideals, that we will take the power away from those groups, place it in the hands of our people again, and make sure that the change happens because we are the drivers of the change we are now talking about. Somebody said the other day, you know, we fought for freedom and all we got was democracy. Which begs the question, is, is democracy working for us? You know, is democracy working for the majority? Isn't there a case to be made for some sort of a benevolent dictatorship, you know? <laughs> Democracy seems to not be working for the poor, it's working for the elite. Well, that's right. But that is because uh, we have allowed a democracy to exist as if the masses don't matter. Um, we have a, we have, we like, we are too much like the United States. The United States doesn't have a democracy. They have a plutocracy. They have a, an autocracy where corporatism and money is driving the political decisions that politicians make because every politician is in the pocket of another corporate person or a corporate entity. So they, bribery is the coin of the realm. Mm. Corruption is the coin of the realm. And so it's not that democracy is wrong. It's still, with all its flaws, the best system that we have. I have definitely, I mean, if, if I go there and I say, oh, everybody, you look at me and I'm a church person, I will be a benevolent dictator. Trust me. I won't even trust myself because there are too many examples in history where people who have come and presented themselves as the savior of a moment because they think their own personality and power can make them a benevolent dictator. Tomorrow, that guy is a dictator for life. He doesn't change. He does exactly what the others. So it is, bus, it is much better to bring our people together, to educate our people what democracy really means. I go around the country, and one of the first things I almost try to say is, we've got to make a distinction between freedom and freedom. Is the freedom we fought for the freedom we are being told that we have? What does it mean when your freedom is defined for you by a newspaper or by some professor somewhere or by some politician, but not by yourself? What does it mean if you have freedom but you can't have a job? What does freedom even mean? If you go to school and you work hard and you get through matric and you get a degree and then they tell you there's no job. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things, the debates that I'm hoping that South Africans will begin to engage in. And I'm hoping that because some people say because we have gone through so much, we are too tired, we can't, we can't, and we are too cynical now. I'm saying no. 
It's because we have gone through so much. We have learned so much. Yeah. Nobody ever, for instance, will lie to us and say to us, if you only get a black face in office and forget those white people, then things will be real. We have 30 years to learn that that is a lie. Yeah. So we are, we've learned that lesson. We will not be caught by that lie again. That's what I'm saying. But if you look at, you know, you, you rightly say America is not a, a pure democracy. But if you look at China, if you look at Singapore, if you look at Rwanda, especially Singapore is often held up as a, as a shining example of what a country that's not a democracy could achieve by, by centralism. Yeah. No, I, I hear what you say. Hmm. But remember, those people live in a situation with a history and with a culture that is entirely different from ours. Um, they, 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 they do well economically because they have this one centralized power who makes all the decisions. But do they have uh, trade unions? Mm. Do you see a South Africa embracing a democracy and telling the trade unions, all right, guys, that's okay, go sit in the corner, do what I say? Yeah. I mean, you think that they, they may be weak now, and let's be honest, our trade unions now are weak. And one reason why they are weak is because their leadership has turned into corporate labor union bosses. They have all been swallowed up by this corporatist capitalist system, and they have weakened and hollowed out the power of the real power of our trade unions. But if you listen on the ground, stop stewards are still meeting. They may not be as powerful as they were during the days of the UDF, but shop stewards are still there with their ear on the ground. They feel the pain of their people and their workers. They when factories are closed down, or they get upset when people are fired, or they get upset when one factory passes into the hands of a new company that does not care about the workers and their rights and their benefits. So we can't go and say, let's be like China. China does not know about trade unions and China doesn't care about trade unions and China is happy and China has a model that works. I'm saying, what is it that we can learn from China? Because China has this, there's this unique capitalist system and this unique socialist system mm. and without all sorts of other, and they have enormous success. And I'm saying, can South Africa be as imaginative as China? without taking away the rights of our people, without shutting out the trade unions, without making sure that every every trade union, every worker has a right, every household is represented. I mean, and every voice is being heard. So while I admire China and would love to emulate so much, we must learn from them. But we must then ask ourselves, China is China, South Africa is South Africa. Our situation is different. Can we develop with our imagination and with our love for our people and with what we have now known. Can we develop an economic system that might very well be the model for Africa yeah. in a way that as much as China is, China I'm hoping that China's model in terms of governance does not become the model for Africa. We must find an African way. When people say African solutions for African problems, that's what I mean as well. Okay. Now, you declined an invite to share in the celebrations of the 40th anniversary of the UDF, of which you are a founder member. And you, and you wrote a public letter, and the, and the response from Popo Molefe was also very public. Would you reconsider? He's asked you, he asked you, Dr. Busak, please, can you come to this event? Would you reconsider? Well, 
No, I, I also wrote him a letter back on that response of his. Mm. And I told him I did reconsider, I did think very much about it, but my answer is still the same. Because even though he wrote me back a very respectful letter, which I, which I really do appreciate. It's a very civil exchange, as you see. Mm. Um, even though he wrote me all that, and he did not, he did not really enter into any of the arguments that I raised. My, my, my objections to this revival of the UDF are, in my view, fundamental objections. And I mean, the simple questions. When, how do you celebrate something 40 years after it was launched? Like 32 years after you yourself killed it? Because it became not your friend, not your partner, not your helper in building up the democracy, but a competition to you. The ANC came back, and one of the main points on its agenda, remember they came back in 1990, Harlan. 1991, they closed down the UDF. To me, that says... This is, must have been part of their discussions all through those years that they were preparing to come home. Number one on their priority list was not to get rid of the party. Number one on their priority list was to get rid of the United Democratic Front. What does that tell you? And so how can those same people who saw in the UDF not a partner, not somebody that they can help, uh, that can help them reintegrate, because they were away for 30 years, reintegrate into South African society, reconnect with their people, reconnect with the politics of our thinking. They, they, they completely messed up. We had black consciousness. We had the UDF. We had non-racialism. The ANC to this day has no concept of what non-racialism means. The ANC is still captured with an old colonial and an apartheid mindset. One of the first things they did from Mr. Mandela downwards was to reintroduce the, 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 the color race categorization. You're a colored now. You're an African now. So, Dr. Busa, the election 2024, by all accounts, will be a watershed election. What do you make of the coalition framework discussions and where we're heading as a nation? You have touched on the issue of identity, but where are we heading as a nation? Well, I think the whole question of identity politics is a, is a, is a very, very dangerous politics. Since we are also talking about the UDF, I am reminded uh, that in the very first time I called for the formation of the UDF, January in 1983, I talked about the danger of ethnic politics. I, I, I put it like this, it, it's like a fire that we are holding in our laps and it will burn us and it will burn up the country. And I remember I repeated that uh, with the launch of the UDF uh, in August of that year, 1983. In 2008, uh, UWC invited me to speak uh, to do the Ashley Creel Memorial Lecture and to talk about the UDF. It was 25 years old then. I repeated it then in light of the Zuma I am an African, I am a 100% Zulu boy thing. And I, and so I've always warned our country that this thing is going to be a destructive thing and it'll burn us up. Look where we are now in the Western Cape. We've got a Cape Colored Congress. We've got we people, white people in the Western Cape who want to secede from, from South Africa because they don't want to be ruled by black people. Um, we've got, we've got all of those things. I think it is a disastrous route. So what we need is 
is is a movement, and people were not were not afraid and ashamed of non-racialism to bring our people together. We need that unitedness that we had, that togetherness that we had. And I say we 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 can take it back because we experienced it once, and that should be from local level. And we have a different kind of political discourse in our schools and in our communities, no, no, in our media uh, and in our politics. Um, and it's not just important for politics at the at the level of national politics, but also most importantly on the level of local politics. Our people have this lopsided idea that because national people make the national laws and they get most paid than everybody else, they are the most important. But really the most important level of government is local government. That is the most immediate and most intimate face of government with our people on the ground. And so if you can't get it right there, then you can forget about getting it right upstairs because the guys who get formed in local and they in local politics and they are not right and they are not ready to accept the politics of honesty and integrity and decency and virtue and courage they take that that they take that attitude and they take those those, those filthy values they take with them upwards as they move up the ladder and that's why we are in the in the difficult situation that we are so i see, i see a south africa that can be Fully the people that we fought for, fully the country that we sacrificed for, the things that we said to each other in in the 1980s can still be realized. But our revolution has been stolen, so you've got to take it back. Our energies have been stolen, you've got to take it back. Our hearts have been stolen by others who don't deserve it, you've got to take it back and you've got to give it back. Our power has been hijacked by people who don't know how to use it, they abuse it for their own self-service and their own self-interest, we've got to take all of that back. That is the next step. And the following step, and when we have that, then we say, now, do we build? How do we rebuild? What is what we've got in our hands in order to rebuild that South Africa that we need? But you've got to get these people who are now standing in the way of a decent, honest country with dignity. You've got to get those people out of the way first. And so that's hard political work. And that's what we have to do. So do you favor, uh, I'm going to speak to uh, Dr. Busak, the prophet now, uh, is the future ANC-DA alliance or, or, or ANC-EFF uh, alliance? It looks like there are a few options. Well, I know. I mean, and that is the difficulty, but it's what my American friends call the lesser of two evils. And I hate it. I don't want our people to be confronted with, oh, you have to, but okay, are you going to take me because that guy is worse than me? In terms of the coalition, I have said in that letter to Popo Malefi, and I have repeated it in public, the DA-ANC coalition will be a disaster because the DA, the ANC has such weak leadership that whoever the DA comes with, doesn't matter how qualified or how strong or how weak they are, they will be stronger than the ANC. Um, that's clear to me. They have already a better record at local government level than the ANC has at local government level. They are already acting as a provincial government. The DA is acting as if it has national powers. 
The DA says, you are afraid of Putin, we will arrest him. The DA talks as if they have international foreign ministers for themselves in Cape Town. I mean, that is an assumption, that is an usurpation of national powers that we should be upset about. Yeah, he doesn't worry about that. So it seems to me that coalition, and, and, and I also say that the, the DA is the most successful new colonial project on the continent of Africa. If the DA gets into bed with the ANC, that is where we will take us because the ANC already has taken us down the drain so far down the lane. So that's number one. I don't know about the EFF because I worry about the EFF economic policies. I worry about the EFF's ethnic policies. I worry about that they are too ethnically driven. I worry about the authoritarian notions that I sometimes see in Mr. Malema. Um, I do not, I mean, he puts on a red beret to look like Sankara, I suppose. And maybe for some young people, that's attractive, but that red beret also um, also spells out and symbolizes a militarism that I am very, very wary of. So I suppose we will have to come together, let them come together and talk, but we must prevent coalitions that will drag us further down the drain. And, and, and coalition has not worked on local level because we don't know how. How can we go into coalition on a national level if we don't know how it works on a local level? Okay. And so I, I see all kinds of traps and I will be, uh, I mean, there must be other arrangements that can be made, even interim arrangements, than just coalitions. And I think, again, I'm pleading for the creativity and the imagination of South Africans to see the crisis for what it is, to devise ways out of the crisis so that we can get through the crisis in the quickest possible fashion. To the amazing and talented Great Governance team, The Voice, Mpumilali, and producer Al Ontong, respect and love. Keep the faith and let's work to make South Africa great right where we are. If you loved what you heard, subscribe to our Great Governance podcast that is available free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And of course, also on our HRD Governance Facebook page. And don't forget to tell a friend to tell a friend about us. Listen to learn.